thank you for joining us. We're really excited to uh, just kick off uh, our Genesis series on the life of Jacob. And so if you have your Bibles, would you please turn to Genesis chapter 25, uh, verses 19 to 34. Genesis 25, 19 to 34. And um, it's also going to go up on the screen uh, for, um, yeah, if that makes things easier for, for you. May God bless the reading of his holy word. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled within her, and she said, if, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. After his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted and Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear it to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, quick show of hands. Uh, and, you know, I'd love the participation. I don't do this often, but quick show of hands. Uh, how many of you are the oldest sibling? Any oldest siblings? All right, about half, about half. And uh, how many of you guys are the youngest sibling? Yeah, okay, a little bit of minority. And uh, sorry, no poll for the middle or only children. Um, yeah kind of sucks. But uh, it's okay. God loves you guys too. God loves you guys too. Um, but the reason for this is because I'm the oldest of two sons in my family. So I'm the yeah, first son, older brother. And if I'm completely honest with you, growing up in church, I never liked the story of Jacob and Esau. In fact, <laughs> Like, I kind of hated it. And if you think about it, it, it kind of makes sense because everything about it just didn't sit well with me, right? It didn't sit well with me. The idea that the older is going to serve the younger, you know, I look at my younger brother, I'm like, no, that's not cool, right? The idea of the younger or one being stronger than the other, right? And, and, and you know, God's talking about Jacob being stronger than Esau. I always read it hoping that it was Esau being stronger than Jacob, but God was like, no, 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 no. It's actually going to be Jacob being stronger and greater than his older brother Esau. And so I'm the older brother, and I'm prideful, and I'm like, that's not cool, 
right? I didn't like it when I read the story of, of Jacob stealing his brother's birthright. And later, as we keep learning about Jacob's life, we're going to see Jacob and his mom, Rebecca, you know, swindle, right? Esau's blessing from their kind of blinding, like blind father. He's like, he goes senile. He doesn't know what's going on. And they steal not only the birthright, but now the blessing. And so I'm reading this and I'm like, as an older brother, like I'm super upset and I hated Jacob, right? I really did not like Jacob because I just projected all of my negative thoughts on my brother, younger brother onto Jacob. Jacob seemed like such a snake, right? He seemed like such a coward to me. And so even though I knew the outcomes of the stories, I still found myself rooting for Esau, right? Do you ever guys ever do that? You like know the story, but you're still rooting for the other guy and the end, the end is always the same, but it just shows how much of a narcissist I was, right? Such a narcissist. I'm rooting for Esau just because I'm the first son, just like him, right? But one of the great themes of scripture is in fact that God chooses the lesser to become greater, that God chooses the weak things in the world to shame the strong, right? That God chooses the younger rather than the older. And so in the beginning of Genesis, Adam and Eve, they have their children, God approves of Abel over Cain. Cain was the older brother. He drove his older brother nuts. God chooses Isaac rather than Ishmael. Ishmael was actually Abraham's first son. He had it with the slave woman, Hagar. But the child of promise was the second. It was Isaac. And here we see God choosing Jacob over Esau. Later, as we keep reading through the Old Testament, it's David. David's the last of all of his brothers and, and they look down on him. They punk him, right? They, they're like, he doesn't even count at times. And yet God chooses David to be the greatest king of Israel, right? And so this is a biblical theme. And this is the first lesson for all of us first siblings. I saw a lot of older brothers, a lot of older sisters. First lesson is, hey, we're not as great as we think we are, right? As much as we want to say we're the most important children, the most important siblings of the family, God's like, you know what? In my kingdom, I love to flip things upside down. In the kingdom of God, the lesser becomes greater. The weaker becomes stronger. So despite what my parents told me, and despite what my, grandma, my, my grandparents told me, because not only was I the first son, I was the first son of the first son, right? And so if you're in an Asian household, that means you are spoiled rotten. And everyone thinks you're going to be like just the most amazing person. And uh, I got to swallow that bitter pill. It's not about me. It's not about me. Well, in today's message, uh, we see conflict throughout the story. As we read about the conception, uh, the, the, the childhood, right, and the early adult life between Jacob and Esau, there is con conflict throughout the entire story. And so I want to frame the message around that conflict. And so we have three sections. The first is simply this. We're going to look at conflict in conception, right? The conflict in conception. Uh, what did Isaac and what was Rebekah going through, right, in trying to conceive? Second, conflict in brotherhood. We're going to look at specifically Jacob and Esau's relationship, their dynamic, and we're going to see conflict there. And lastly, we're going to look at the conflict resolved. Okay. How is this conflict resolved? Where's the, where's the, the silver lining right, or the takeaway for us? And uh, we're going to look at it at the end. Well, we learned in our previous series right, um, through Genesis that God promised to make Abraham a great nation. And that Isaac was the miraculous child of promise. And so when Abraham was 75 years old, God went to Abraham. And he said, you know what, Abraham, I want to bless you. Right? I want to make you a great nation. You go into the land that I'm going to show to you. And Abraham obeyed. He believed in God. 
and he received the promises that he would have offspring, that he would receive a land. He would become a great nation and then bless all the nations, right? That was Abraham and the covenant God made with him. Here's a problem. Abraham and his wife, Sarai or Sarah, they had no children, okay? They had no offspring. So this idea of becoming a great nation, of having a family and having children, that was a huge promise. Well, Abraham had to wait not 5, 10, 20, but 25 years for God to make good on that promise. Abraham was 100 years old when God gave him Isaac, right? And so Isaac was this miraculous child of promise, okay? And Abraham only had two children, one Ishmael, and that was with a slave woman. And then he had Isaac, right, the child of promise. And so we get that, we see that, and we expect, okay, Isaac, Isaac's gonna marry Rebekah, and then they are just gonna launch the family. They're just gonna have children upon children, like rabbits, and just, we're gonna see the nation just really starting to form. But in our text, we learn that Isaac and Rebekah have a similar problem, just like Abraham and Sarah, right? The text tells us that Rebekah was barren and unable to have children, And this is the first point of conflict, the first point of tension. You're expecting the promise that God made to Abraham, right? That idea that they're going to become a great nation, like the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. That's going to actually start happening. But they can't have kids. Isaac and Rebekah can't have kids. And so verse 21 tells us, Isaac prayed to the Lord. He prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And that's all in one verse, verse 21, and it seems like it happens really quickly. But it's very important for us to note the important detail in this text about his prayer. It was a prayer that took 20 years for God to answer. It took 20 years for God to answer this prayer when Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, that they would have a child. Okay? It's only one verse, but that's 20 long years. He didn't just pray for a week. He didn't just pray for a month. He didn't just pray for a year. It was 20 years of interceding for his wife, pleading to the Lord and trusting in him. It was a test and a trial. He was married at the age of 40, and it wasn't until he was 60, okay, when Jacob and Esau were born. Now, church, we mustn't let the brevity of the text mislead us and make light of this fact. Think about that. Have you ever prayed for anything for 20 years? Have you ever waited for anything for 20 years? Right? Few of us can say that. Few of us can say we've prayed consistently, faithfully, passionately for something for 20 long years. You and I, we struggle to pray for like 20 straight days, don't we? I can't even pray 20 days for the same thing unless I'm praying for my food. Right? That's the only good thing I can do, 20 straight days. And yet Isaac is doing this for 20 years. Let's not make light of that. Let's not make light of that. You see, Isaac knew the covenant. He knew the promise that God made with Abraham, his father. He knew that he was the chosen one and that he was supposed to carry on this line that God promised to make Abraham and his descendants a great nation and bless the nations through him. And yet he gets married and he can't even have kids. Guys, trying for two years to have kids with your spouse, that is emotionally very difficult. At some point, you're like, what is wrong with us? The husband might think, what's wrong with me? The wife might think, what is wrong with me? And then at worst, you start blaming each other. 
And you're like, you're the reason why we're not getting pregnant. And you know, we're not, we're not keeping on schedule or you're too stressed or you're unhealthy or whatever it might be. It's stressful and difficult to try even for two years. You try for 20 years, it's a nightmare. You go 20 years and you're trying and hoping and praying to have children and you can't. It is a nightmare. And yet that is what God was leading Isaac and Rebecca through. They must have often thought, man, God's not listening. Man, God's forgotten them. Maybe God doesn't care anymore. But scripture tells us Isaac prayed and he kept trusting in God to make good on his promises. And I believe that we have so much to learn about what it means for you and I to wait on the Lord, for us to endure long suffering and all the while know that he is always faithful. Now, I wanna say one thing about trusting God. Okay, one important thing about trusting God, we too often treat trusting God as a passive thing. Okay? If I asked you, what does it mean to trust God? All right, you'd just be like, oh, you know, just like in your heart. Right? Or maybe you'll say, oh, it means to believe. Right? Or maybe you'll tell me, oh, you know, it just means to like put your faith in him. And those are all good answers. They're true answers. Right? But we have this tendency to reduce trusting God to an attitude or a perspective. Think about that. If someone asks you, hey, are you trusting God in something? You'll kind of think just inwardly and you'll just say, oh, is this like an attitude or a feeling or a perspective or an emotion that I have? But in this text, we see that trusting God is not just a state of mind, okay? It's not just a platitude. Trusting God is active, okay? Think about what Isaac was doing. Isaac demonstrated his trust in God's promises by doing two things, right? I'm going to say it bluntly, okay? He prayed, and he kept having sex with his wife, okay? Yeah, if you're falling asleep, you just woke up, right? You're like, Pastor just had sex, right? Those are the two things he kept doing. He kept praying, and he kept sleeping with his wife, okay? And this was an active obedience. He was acting on his faith. So at age 40, he's praying and sleeping with his wife. At age 50, and at 60, it wasn't until 60, that means at age 58 and 59, they were still trying to conceive. And they were praying and pleading for children. And age 60, finally, Isaac became a father of twins. Do you guys see that? That's trust. That is an active faith. That is an active faith. Um, church, now I would ask you, are you trusting in God? with the things that matter most to you, the things that are stressing you out, the things that are causing you fear and anxiety and doubt, causing us to lose sleep over, are you trusting God with those things in an active sense, with your prayers and with your obedience? Or have you, have you given up on God? Have you given up? And scripture today tells us two indicators, things that, that metrics that we can know identify uh, whether we have stopped trusting in him. And it's simply, you've stopped praying and you've stopped trying, okay? Whatever that thing is that matters so much to you right now, whatever that thing is that if you're in a small group, you'll say, oh, this is my prayer request, right? Or if you meet somebody up for accountability or you meet me up and I'm like, hey, what can I pray for you about? What's like big in your life? Whatever that thing is that you would share, I'll ask you this, have you quit praying and if you quit trying, okay? Because if you've quit doing either of those, 
you've really quit trusting in God. It's not just an attitude. It's not just a perspective. It is active. You see, our prayer and our obedience, they are not contrary to each other. In fact, they're necessary counterparts. Prayer without obedience, you know what that means? If you pray, if you're like, Lord, give me this, please deliver us, but you don't do anything, you don't act upon that, you know what that is? That's lip service. Prayer without obedience is lip service. You're just saying all the flowery right things, okay? But action and obedience without prayer, that's independence, okay? Action and obedience without prayer if you're not praying, but you're like trying to do all the right things, work really hard and be really disciplined, but you're not praying, you are not depending on God. You're depending on yourself and your abilities, your gifts, your disciplines. And friends, we need both. We need prayer to make sure we're in a posture of dependence, right? And we need obedience to make sure we're not just talkers. We're not just hypocrites. Right? Both are necessary to trust in the Lord with the important things in your life. So perhaps that important thing is the salvation of your friends or your children or your parents. And you're like, God, I really pray that you would save my loved ones. Make yourself known to them. Question, have you been praying for them? Follow up. When's the last time you told them about Jesus? Right? Simple as that. I mean, that's just like the heart check. Because if you don't tell them about Jesus, if you're not obeying and sharing the gospel, how can you genuinely say this is a dominant thing, an important thing, a precious thing, and something you are truly longing for and praying for and trusting God in? Second example, perhaps you're hoping to meet someone and get married. Right? That's your prayer topic. That's what your parents are always asking about. When are you going to get married? Right? When are you going to meet someone? You're like, yes, Lord, I want to meet that one, that guy, that perfect guy, that perfect girl. And then someone's like, hey, I want to set you up with a friend. And you're like, no. Right? Hey, do you want to go on a date? Right? Some, some good guy, some good Christian guy asks you out. And you're like, nope. Right? Well, do you really? Are you really open? Are you really longing to meet somebody and get in a serious relationship or get married? Or are you just saying that? Right? Are you just saying that? Okay. Trusting God doesn't mean that you just wait and you hope that things will fall in your lap. God is not like some divine spiritual genie where you just rub something and say, you know, million dollars, you know, perfect guy, you know, perfect family, perfect job. No, that is not, that is not how God relates to us and not, that's not how God wants us to view him. It means you remain active both in prayer and obedience. Let's keep going in the text. So not only was conception difficult, for Isaac and Rebecca, okay? But God's word tells us that the pregnancy itself was extremely difficult. Verse 22 tells us that the children struggled within Rebecca. Look at that text. It says, struggled within Rebecca. And the word for struggle in the Hebrew, it literally means to crush, right? So that's the image, that these two little babies inside Rebecca's womb were like just trying to crush each other. It was like, you know, like WWF wrestling in there, right? And they were fighting each other. They were trying to one-up each other. They were wrestling within Rebecca's womb. And this pain and discomfort was so great that she forgets the joy. She forgets the blessing that God had even answered their 20-year-long prayer request. And she starts complaining, like, why is this pregnancy so hard? 
right? She's like, what is going on? Why is this happening to me? Wasn't it hard enough for us to get pregnant? Why does this pregnancy have to be so difficult and so painful? And when she asked this, like literally she just says, like the Hebrew says again, it's like, why I? Like, why me, God? And she's in anguish. She's inquiring. She's like demanding the Lord answer her. And the Lord explains to her in verse 23. It's because two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. See, it wasn't just that Rebecca was having twins and two sons. She was gonna have two nations within her and they would be in ongoing conflict. Okay? Jacob would become Israel, the nation of Israel. Okay? Esau would become the nation of Edom. And throughout their entire histories, they're always at war with each other. And, for, and King David defeats the Edomites, but they rise again. They partner with Babylonia and Babylonia overcomes Israel. Even to the point of Jesus's death. You guys heard of that guy, King Herod and King Herod's ruling in Israel? He's an Edomite. He's an Edomite. Herod was trying to kill Jake, uh, Jacob's line, seed, Jesus who comes from that line. Even till the end, even in the life of Christ, Israel and Edom are at war, right? And this is what God is telling her. That's what's going on. That is the kind of conflict that's going on in your womb. No wonder they're trying to crush each other. No wonder it's so painful. No wonder it's so difficult. One shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And when they were born, Esau came out first hairy and red all over. And then Jacob came out seconds later, holding on to his brother's heel. Jacob's name literally means heel grabber, okay? Like that's kind of a lame name, right? You're like, your name, you, you mean heel grabber because that's what you did when you came out, right? Literally means heel grabber. And so that's the kind of conflict that they had in the womb. But not only was there conflict in the womb and at birth, but there was also conflict as brothers throughout their entire childhood. Right? And so we're going to continue in our, in our text. Let's look at the conflict in brotherhood. Verses 27 to 28 tells us more about Jacob and Esau as they grew up as brothers. And the text reads as, this, as such. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, once again, if you're like me growing up, you probably imagine Esau to be like a man's man, right? Just like super macho, super cool, because he's this hunter, right? And he's an outdoorsman. I mean, you, if you saw Braveheart, you just think of like Esau, right? And like that flowing red hair and just out so just savage and, and awesome, right? That's how I imagine Esau. And then how do you imagine Jacob? I thought he was a sissy mama's boy, right? Just complete sissy mama's boy, can't even grow a mustache or body hair or anything like that. Uh, not that I can. Um, but once again, I was like projecting all of my negative thoughts for, from my brother onto Jacob. But that's how I imagined them. And that's another reason why I favored Esau over Jacob. Just I thought he was more masculine. He was way cooler. But that's not really the fullest or best description of these two brothers. It's true, Jacob, or Esau was a hunter and he was an outdoorsman, but Esau was not a heroic leader. Esau was not wise, right? Esau was not charismatic. Esau was not faithful, right? Esau was not God-centered, 
We're gonna see that he was selfish. We're gonna see that he was brash and terribly foolish. That's the picture of Esau, not like this amazing hero, but actually a foolish, brash outdoorsman. Now, when scripture describes Jacob as a quiet man, Right? We think of quietness as like weakness, right? Or, or some, some of those attributes. But in the Hebrew, the word for this quietness is tom, tom. And this means complete, blameless, and wholesome. Okay, so when, when we're describing Jacob, the Bible says he's, he's tom, tamin, right? And that word is used to describe Noah when Noah was blameless in his generation. That word was used to describe Abraham when God just showed, showed favor upon Abraham as a blameless man set apart from his generation. That word was used to describe Job. Job, this man who experienced so much uh, trial and trouble, and yet he did not curse God. He remained faithful to God. And that same word is used to describe Jacob. And that feels out of place to me because I'm reading Jacob and I'm like, Jacob is like so mischievous, right? He manipulates the situation. He stole his brother's birthright. How could Jacob be blameless, right? But the scripture tells us a little bit more about Jacob. And it also tells us that Jacob dwelled in tents. He dwelled in his father's tent. And that doesn't mean that he was a mama's boy or a homebody. It actually meant that Jacob cared more for his household and his brother, that Esau was out just hunting, right? And, and, and just hanging out outdoors and playing around and killing animals and bringing game back home. But Jacob was at home caring for the family business. Jacob was at home honoring his father and mother. Jacob was at home um, becoming a leader in the household. You see, Jacob cared for the cattle and Jacob became a competent shepherd, a competent herdsman. And so later we're gonna hear the story of how Jacob gets his wives and he's working for this guy named Laban. And because he's such a great shepherd and so good with cattle, he's able to manipulate their breeding and kind of come out on top. It was like kind of like awkward because he's like kind of stealing animals from Laban again. Once again, Jacob's work in process. He's got a lot of growing to do spiritually. But you don't just wake up and know how to breed cattle, right? And, and make them look and act a certain way. Jacob was learning how to take care of the entire household, not just going out and killing you know, deer for fun and sport. So Esau may have been the cowboy, but Jacob was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. And it's in this sense he was complete. It's in this sense he was blameless. It is in this sense that, um, yeah, uh, he was Tom. In their youth, Jacob and Esau, they competed against each other, not just physically, but also for their parents' affections. Isaac loved Esau because he loved the game that he brought back, right? He loved that meat. He loved that game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And we're not actually told why, right? We're not actually told why. It just said, right? We have an explanation. Why did Isaac love Esau? Because of the food, right? Why did Rebekah love Jacob? It doesn't say. And so me, the older brother, is like, oh, it's just because he's the baby, right? He's the mama's boy. But uh, commentators tell us, you know, it's because Rebecca believed in God. God said, one shall be stronger and the older shall serve the younger. And Rebecca, every time she looked at Jacob and Esau, she loved both of her sons, but she knew Jacob was the chosen one. So she loved Jacob. She loved the one that God loved, right? She loved the one God loved. 
Isaac just loved the one that brought home the meat. So, in verses 29 and 34, we see the main conflict between these two brothers. Esau was exhausted from a, 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 exhausted and hungry from a day of hunting. And in this story, verses 29 to 34, Esau foolishly trades his birthright for a bowl of red stew. And now this narrative, it moves quickly. And it's so quick and it feels so reckless that we like, it, it's hard to like understand like what's really going on. We're like, oh my gosh, is he really gonna do this? And he's, it's like, before you can even process, he's already done it. He's like, what good is it for me? Just swear. He's like, okay, done. Eats, gets up and leaves. You're like, did that just happen? Did he really just give away his birthright? And the whole point is uh, to show us how reckless and careless Esau really was. So it moves fast on purpose. The narrative is, the narrator's telling us this on purpose. Jacob comes off as manipulative and greedy because he was. He was demanding that Esau trade his birthright for some stew, okay? A loving brother would just feed his famished, hungry brother, wouldn't he? But Jacob just tries to leverage this moment, says, you know what, give me that birthright. I remember what our dad told us about the covenant of Abraham. I remember how great our grandfather was. I remember those promises, and you know what? I want that. I want that birthright. I want that blessing. So give it to me. Here's some stew. Give me your birthright. Jacob comes off as, yeah, manipulative and greedy. But Esau comes off as the greater fool. He's the greater fool because he's the one who gave it away so cheaply. You can say Jacob was a jerk for trying to get a birthright for a bowl of stew, but who's the fool that actually gave it away? And that was Esau. And in the Hebrew culture, the birthright was something that belonged to the firstborn. Let me explain a little bit about the birthright. Right? It's something that belonged to the firstborn. It meant that that firstborn son, sorry girls, not the firstborn girl, but firstborn son, right? He would receive double the inheritance or at times the entire inheritance. There were situations where the firstborn son got everything and all the siblings had to just live under his household, right? And be taken care of by him. But this birthright is also something that could be lost and it could be sold. And so there's a man named Reuben in the Bible and he lost his birthright because of his sin. There's another Hebrew story where a man sold his birthright for three sheep, okay? His entire birthright for three sheep as the first son. But you know who's even worse? Esau. Esau sold it away, not just any birthright, but the birthright to Abraham. The birthright to the covenant of God. He sold it away for a bowl of soup. And in verse 32, we see Esau's attitude. His complete, careless, reckless attitude towards the birthright. And he blurts out, right? After Jacob asks for it, he's like, sell me your birthright. And he's like, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? I'm so hungry, I'm about to die. I'm about to starve to death, which is probably like a euphemism. Like, you're not actually gonna do that. But he did, that's what he felt. What use is a birthright to me? And verse 34 concludes our passage. And it reads, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So what was Esau's birthright? First of all, it wasn't worthless. It was priceless. It's the greatest birthright that the world had ever seen. It was to be heir to his father's household. Right? It was to have the blessings of God's covenant with his grandfather Abraham fall upon him. 
God promised Abraham to bless him. He promised that he was going to give him a family, make his name great, and bless all the nations through him. He promised him a kingdom and a land. He promised to make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the shore. And Esau's like, what good is that to me? I'm freaking hungry. Right? What good is that to me right now in my starvation? And when Esau sold his birthright, he gave away the great covenant promises of God. And he wasn't even sorry. There was no regret, no remorse. And that's why we get those four verbs really quickly, right? After he sells his birthright, he gets that bread and that stew. And what does he do? He ate, drank, rose, and went his way, right? That's intentionally just quick. Four quick verbs right there. He was content. Esau was content with that momentary meal and thus despised his birthright. One commentator wrote about Esau just on this passage. This is Esau. This is the kind of man Esau was. He was a man who valued the present rather than the future, the material rather than the invisible. The momentary satisfaction of physical desires, they seemed more important to him than the approval of God. The body, not the spirit, dominated his scale of virtues. When you hear that, church, does this sound like you? Are you somebody who values the present rather than the future? Do you value the material over the invisible, the bodily over the spiritual? You see, church, we can look at Esau and say, man, Esau, you're such a fool. You're so reckless. You're so impatient, right? You're such a cowboy. But in our own lives, we do the same, don't we? You and I, we are promised the kingdom of God in all of its glory. But you know what we do? We trade down. We trade down. We get ripped off for a bowl of earthly stew. And it just looks different. It just looks different. So we trade away our integrity for financial gain, for a bonus at work, for a better job, for a better paycheck. We're, we're willing to lie. We're willing to cheat. Some of us are willing to steal. Also, you can get a little bit more financially. And you give away your integrity. You give away your witness. You give away that title and dignity of being an ambassador for God's kingdom. You sell that out so you can have a little bit more. Right? We give away our generosity. Your opportunity to be generous your opportunity to be gracious, whether it's supporting missionaries or feeding the, feeding the hungry and caring for the poor, you and I give that away, that gift, that privilege of being generous away by spending all of our resources on ourselves. Okay? If you look at your credit card statement, you look at your financials, and if you spend all your money on yourself, you're giving away your opportunity to be generous. You're giving away your opportunity to truly demonstrate the fact that the gospel is a free grace gift of God, that our God is a generous God. And he's been generous and gracious to you and you have this opportunity to be generous and gracious to others and you say, no, I'm not going to because I want to spend all of that, all of what I have on myself. You see, you're trading down. You and I were trading down right there. We give away our time with God for a time in front of a TV 
or a computer screen. How many of you guys think you have not enough time to pray? No time to read scripture, no time to memorize scripture, no time to to spend time just meditating and reflecting upon God. You're like, I'm too busy. Too much work, too much school, too much family, too much busyness. I I read recently, like, the average person touches their phone 2,600 times a day. And at first I was like, oh, that's crazy. And then I thought about myself, like, I probably do. Average person, that's, that's, the, that's the mean, right? Some of you guys probably touch it three, four, 5,000 times a day, especially if you're playing Candy Crush or whatever the latest game is. Right? And so we're going to spend all of that time on our phones, all of that time in front of Netflix or in, in front of a TV or whatever. It be. And then we're going to say, God, I don't have time for you. And you and I are trading down, don't you see? We're trading down time with God so that we can indulge ourselves over these digital bowls of stew. When's the last time you finished a Netflix series and like, I feel like a better person? Never. But we still binge. When's the last time you finished a uh, a level on a game on your phone and you're like, I really grew from that. But I want to tell you this. I've never spent time in prayer I've never spent time reading God's word and felt like it was a waste. Never in my life have I said that. And I don't believe you will either. Stop trading down. We trade down when we give away our purity for the next sexual experience, whether it's by by yourself or with a person you're seeing. We trade down and we give ourselves away. Do you know what Jesus says about purity and what he offers us in exchange? In the Beatitudes in, Jesus, in Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. That is the reward for purity, that your heart, your eyes, your body is clean. And you can come before God without this this burning sense of guilt. You can come before God with a clean conscience and you can actually see him. You can feel him. You can hear him. But the more and more you and I pervert ourselves with our hands, our eyes, our lusts, our longings, our behaviors, the more and more numb and distant we become to God. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Do you believe that? Or do you trade down for 15 minutes of earthly pleasure, momentary pleasure, the bodily over the spiritual, the finite over the infinite? You and I, we are all just like Esau. We're all just like Esau. God offers us his kingdom. He offers us his presence. He offers us his joy and his life. And we say, you know what? Some of these things on earth, something right now for me, I'd rather have that. Esau chose to fill his belly and he gave up the promises of God. You and I, we've done the same. So what do we do? We see this conflict between Jacob and Esau. We see this warring between them What do we do with this story? 
I, Pastor Mike's clearly been like, don't be like Esau. Esau's a fool. He gave away the promises of God for a bowl of stew. Does that mean we're supposed to be like Jacob? How do we identify with a story? But the other problem is Jacob's like greedy and he's manipulative and he's selfish and he's not giving, he's not loving, he's not caring. He took advantage of a hungry, weak brother and he stole his birthright. That's why I didn't like Jacob, right? What are you supposed to do? Aren't we supposed to kind of like, our general Bible reading tells us we need to kind of pick a character in the story and be like him. Oh, be like Noah, right? Be like Jacob, be like Abraham. You know what? That's actually a really bad way to read the Bible. So today, don't be like Jacob. And if you ever read Judges, don't be like Samson. All right, Samson's bad in a lot of ways, right? Uh, You read through the kings, most of the kings of Israel, you do not want to be like them. What do we do with this passage? John Calvin tells us our highest thoughts are thoughts about God. They're not thoughts about ourselves. They're not thoughts about another person. They're thoughts about God. What do we do with this passage? We ask, what is God doing? What is God doing in the life of Abraham, oh, in the life of Jacob and Esau? And we see Paul reflecting upon God in the story of Jacob and Esau. And in Romans 9 we see uh, God's heart, God's activity, God's sovereignty. And this is what he writes. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now this is a loaded passage because it covers this theological topic called election. The fact that before Jacob and Esau were even born, Paul writes, before they had even done anything good, before they did anything bad, God already knew and he already chose. And God says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now, for many of us, that kind of makes our stomach twist a little bit, right? We're just like, what about free will, right? Does that mean Esau never had a chance? And and those are important questions. I I don't want to get sidetracked with that. I want to highlight something very beautiful and powerful about the doctrine of election. And it's this. God did not choose Jacob because he was good. We read it. We saw it. Jacob was very bad. But Jacob became good because God chose him. Let me say that again. God did not choose Jacob because he was good, but Jacob became good because God chose him. Because God chose him. Think about that. And what we should do leaving this place is leave with hope. Because friends, you and I, we're just like Esau. And you and I, we're just like Jacob. Haven't you taken a moment and, and taking advantage of someone or a situation for your personal benefit, for your personal gain. We have all done this. We've lied to protect ourselves, right? We've lied to make ourselves look better than we actually are. In so many ways, we are not good. And in and of ourselves, we have no right to be called sons of God. We have no right to deserve the blessings of God as sons and daughters. Here's the thing, though. God loved you and he chose you. 
and he sent his son Jesus Christ for you before you even did anything good or bad. That was in his plan. That's in his purpose. And if you know that, if you believe that, then you can be liberated from your idea that you have to save yourself, that you have to be good enough to earn God's love, that you have to change so that you will be lovable, right? No, God loves you first and he'll make you good because he chose you. He'll make you good because he gave his son Jesus Christ up for you, right? And that's the order of the gospel. God loves first. God calls first, and then the transformation follows. And we're going to see this in Jacob's life. He starts off terrible. And the next week, I'm going to preach again, and Jacob's going to do more bad stuff, right? But we're going to see Jacob become a man who is so desperate for God, he wrestles with an angel throughout the night. And he will not leave until he gets blessed because he knows if, if God doesn't bless him, it's out. It's done. He has no hope. We're going to see Jacob become generous. We're going to see Jacob truly become, um, yeah, the man that God's called him and designed him to be. And friend, that's our hope as well. God has loved you before you did anything good or bad. Right. Would you believe that in Christ and in the gospel? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are our hero, God. We put our trust not in someone like Jacob or Esau. We don't put our trust in Abraham or Moses or Noah. God, we thank you that you came down to earth in the form of a man you became completely like us and you lived the life that we should have lived and you died the death that we deserve. Jesus, we thank you that you are our hero, that you are our savior, that you are our redeemer. We thank you that you love us first and you love us better. We thank you that, that your love for us is not conditioned on our performance, our work, our abilities but that your love is purely free. And it is a sovereign love. It is a good love. It is a holy love. It is a costly love. And I pray, that, Lord, that right now you would help us to receive it as well. Help us to believe again that we can be yours, that we can be your sons and daughters. Not because we deserve it, but because you freely give it by grace. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.